How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy, and education is needed to making the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment, and our economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry into a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Energy, and this is the Voices of Energy. Hi, I'm Katie Maynard with the Voices of Energy podcast, and today we are joined by Bill Davis. Bill Davis is the founder of Stands Capital, where he specializes in quantitative ESG asset management and research. Bill created Stans Capital with the purpose to banish the idea that investing in companies that show strong performance on ESG standards will lead to failure. Welcome, Bill, to the Voices of Energy. Hey, Katie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks and be able to visit with you in person. But thank you for joining us today. So we're going to get this started with some warm-up questions, um, some icebreakers, and then we'll delve deep into talking a little bit more about Stance and then some of the great things that you're doing in the community around ESG. So let's get started. So what's your favorite place you've traveled to? I would go with Italy. Why? Any reason? Actually, you know, I've been there probably three or four times, and it's an incredibly interesting and sort of varied country in terms of topography, cuisine, sort of everything. So there's just so many different parts of it. You know, I kind of think about this question in terms of if you could only go to one place again, where would it be? And I'm always just drawn back to Italy. I don't know why. Just like it there. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Warren, shoot away an icebreaker. All right. So let's hit this one. If you could give a piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Oh, that's, uh, I hate this question. I really do. You know, I think that one of the things that I've always felt important is a willingness to fail because I've done actually a lot of different things in my career, like more varied, I would say, than most people from marketing technology to strategy to renewable energy to asset management and portfolio management. And I think for me anyway, I have learned a tremendous amount by getting stuff wrong the first time. And I think it's actually just a really valuable lesson. And maybe I wish I had learned it a little earlier in life. No, it's great. You know, we go to these panels all the time and it comes up time and time again, fail fast, right? Like don't let perfect get in the way of good. And there's so much, especially when you're talking innovation and life lessons and whatnot, you just got to move. But uh, all right, Katie, you're going to hit them with the next one. (laughs) All right. So hopefully you'll like this one better. If you could only take three things to a desert island, what would they be? First of all, I think music is really important. So I'm going to bring music. And if I'm bringing music, I'm going to need a way to charge it. So I'm going to have a little solar powered charger. And then if I'm on an island, I'm assuming I'm surrounded by water. I'm going to need to eat some fish. And therefore, I'm going to bring some fishing equipment, which is I'm calling one thing, but it might actually be a couple of things there. All right. So fish and music. (laughs) I can totally see you on an island fishing (laughs) with your music. Warren, you got the last one. 
All right. So using just one word, name something that drives your success. This one's, I think this is the hardest one. I'd say, well, my first inclination was to say fear to tap into your earlier question, but I'm not going to go there. I think, I think I'm really good at catalyzing things. I tend to see things maybe sometimes too early, but I'm good at getting things started and just, you know, that's it. Just catalyzing. Hmm. Awesome. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds. I know you used to teach. What made you decide to kind of switch from teaching to creating a company? Well, I never, to be clear, I never taught for a living. I have been a visiting adjunct at Columbia University in the Earth Institute. I taught a course on environmental entrepreneurship. This was probably seven or eight years ago. And Honestly, I think I spent more on hotel rooms while I was in New York than I received in compensating revenue. So, but I've also done a lot of guest lecturing. I do it at Vanderbilt every year in a graduate finance course geared around sustainability. I've done it randomly at a bunch of other schools like Harvard, MIT, Harvard Business School, Sloan, places like that. So I really enjoy teaching and I would consider doing it if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now. It's one of those things where I feel like I get more in return from being, you know, surrounded by people who are young and super smart and committed. And it's very exhilarating for me. Really amazing. You know, Bill, before I met you, Katie had told me a little bit about your background. She mentioned that, I mean, you've led some several companies and ultimately each of those is a relationship of its own. I mean, there's a start, a middle and an end to some degree mm -hmm. for you to ultimately start what you're doing now. Can you kind of walk us through that, just like a little bit about your life experience and then how you've seen your career and the world evolve alongside what you've decided to do? Yeah. So Warren, I started my career doing marketing technology, I'll just call it. It was really sort of a database marketing company back when database marketing wasn't really a thing. We were one of a handful of companies that actually helped create, I think, an industry, if I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to overstate my role in it, but we were definitely one of the earliest players in that space. And ultimately, that company got sold to a small private equity firm. I then helped launch another somewhat related company, which was actually focused on something intellectually interesting, but incredibly boring once you kind of start actually living it. But what we were doing was we were helping large general advertisers quantify the ROI of things like TV ads, which is kind of a dark art, if you will, because number one is really, really hard to quantify the ROI of an ad, especially a television or a radio ad. But secondly, I came to learn that in many cases, nobody really much cares. I mean, it's about other things. And it was pretty much six months into it. And I just went to the office one day and I looked around and I just decided that it really wasn't all that interesting to me and I needed to kind of reboot myself. And I think that the reason is I have four kids or they're not kids anymore, but they were at the time. And I think for me, I kind of got to a point in my life where I started thinking more about their world than my own. And once you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others, it's pretty easy to see things that otherwise you might miss. One of the things that I saw back then was that the world was going to end up 
pretty much where we are today from a climate standpoint. You know, we've got scarcity of resources, we've got desalinization of oceans and dead zones in oceans and bigger and bigger storms and fires and floods and pandemics and geopolitical dislocation, all these things, if you just kind of think about it a bit, you can sort of see this playing out. And I saw it playing out back in 2002 is when this occurred to me. And I decided that, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of what I don't know. I believe in surrounding myself with the best people I can possibly find. And I think that's a little bit liberating because then that kind of gives you permission to maybe try some things you've never thought of trying before. And I decided that I wanted to dedicate the rest of my work career to trying to become a more of a part of the solution than the problem. And it led me to launching a what became a venture and private equity-backed renewable energy company. I'm not, by the way, a I'm not a mechanical engineer. I'm not a chemi. I don't have any advanced degrees, but I decided to start a company that was focused on trying to repurpose the energy content in certain waste streams into a renewable syngas. And, you know, by the way, there's a lot of people who have no business doing this that actually have jumped more or less into the same field. I think the difference is that we, we weren't promoters. We, were, we built a pretty serious team of engineers and scientists, and we came up with a very novel way of doing it that ultimately was featured on both Discovery Channel and Science Channel. But the thing is, the one thing that we didn't get right was predicting that the price of natural gas was going to go from $12 an MMBTU down to two or whatever, two and a half. And ultimately, pretty much on the same pace that we were developing the technology and getting ready to commercialize it, this price dislocation, largely as a result of sort of fracking, which was sort of a newfound thing in the U.S., just drove the price of gas way, way, way down to the point where we had no economics in our business model. And ultimately in 2010, you know, we actually survived 2008, which was sort of extraordinary because we were actually in the market raising a series B round and starting the raise literally in June of 08. And somehow or other, we managed to close on a, I think a $24 million up round in January of 09. So we got through that, but we couldn't get around that how to finance serial number 001 when there's basically no economics in the project to begin with. And so, um, you know, that sort of spelled the end of that company. I mean, technically the IP still exists and it's sitting on a shelf somewhere, but we've never been able to do anything with it. Wow. You know, listening to you talk about this, it's, it's fascinating because I know, you know, a large part of what you do is centered around ESG and listening to you also talk about the challenges, the real challenges we face, you know, around our environment. I'd be really interested to, to get your perspective. This is a term that means very different things to different people. There are people out there that don't believe this is real. They believe it's, you know, virtue signaling. There are people out there that are completely get it, right? I'd love to get your perspective on where you think uh, ESG is today, because it's it's obviously existed in forms and fashions in the past, and where you think it's it's headed. So Just a loaded question, very loaded yeah, question. No, 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 it is, and, but it's a good one. So I think at its most basic, I think ESG, which for any listeners that aren't familiar with the term, stands for three words, which aren't even a, a sentence. I mean, it's just three words, environmental, 
social and governance. I think at its core, ESG is simply a proxy for finding a well-managed business, which is to say that if I could invest in two beverage companies that are otherwise identical, but one of them really understands that they have a fragile relationship to their most important input to their process, which is going to be water pretty much 100% of the time, and the other one is oblivious to it, I know which company I want to invest in. And so that's a really simple example, but I do believe that there's this thing in investing called modern portfolio theory, which sort of says, listen, all you really need to do is just diversify. And I'm really simplifying this, but if you have diversification, that sort of is more important than stock picking. It solves a lot of problems. The problem is, is that there's nothing in modern portfolio theory that addresses systemic risk and climate risk is systemic risk. And therefore, it's not enough for the pure motivation of a company to be to maximize shareholder return, because you could argue that, well, long-term, from a long-term standpoint, shareholders are better served by a company that's being thoughtful around issues that represent material risk factors, right? So I think our belief is that the way we think about ESG is we are simply trying to find those companies who relative to their industry group peers are doing a better job of mitigating these off balance sheet risks, which could be environmental in nature, it could have to do with their own governance, or it could have to do with their relationship to their own community, because a community that is not doing well economically or in any other dimension is ultimately not healthy for a business because it's not going to create the workforce and the customers and all of the other things that businesses depend on. So the real point is, is that everything is connected. Businesses are connected to society. They're connected to consumers. And ultimately, to me, ESG is is about finding management teams that are thoughtful in this regard and are really thinking through all of those issues as part of their own value proposition. That's really interesting. You know, you know, here it is. I live in Houston, Texas, and I've been around the oil and gas industry more so than I ever have been in the last two years. It's just been, you know, really kind of inundated in it, meeting a lot of leaders and being in a lot of really neat meetings. And it's always interesting to hear when I just talk to whether it's friends or just people we know, some people really believe in climate change and some people go like, oh, it's a bunch of fooey. But we all know, I mean, I lived in LA and I remember looking at the smog. And I think if that's just the most minute thing that you want to make an effect and you look at how supply chain and the transportation of oil and the way things get shipped around, there's so much that is falling under this ESG component that I think it's almost our mission to like really share with people. It's if you know what's good and great for our kids and our kids' kids and so on and so forth, why wouldn't we want to be doing that? It just seems like it makes sense. So I want to pivot the question a little bit for you that I'm about to ask you. I've read a lot about, you've done lectures at Harvard School of Business, Boston University, MIT, Vanderbilt. These are some major schools. I also know that you're very involved in the Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation, which, you know, those are two generations that a lot of times, especially when like Katie and I are in these meetings, a lot of times that people are in my age, you know, I'm in my 40s, it's common to see gray hair and you just, it's <laughs> the industry we're in, but there is a new generation and the world is changing. 
And the mission is to bring in new candidates for our future and for us to see this vision come to life as far as making things better for Mother Earth and ultimately sustainability. What would you say is a range of these topics that you find are the younger generations are really tuning into, or maybe just some misconception that some of us older folks might have about the younger generation? I think it's complicated, right? Because number one, we're dealing with a massive cohort. If you take, I think, millennials and Gen Zers, I mean, I think it's in the US, I think between them, it's 70 million people. So it's, it's, I think, one of the largest cohorts there's ever been. Secondly, it's always dangerous to, I think, stereotype any big group of people and saying, look, this is how they think. However, I'm going to do it anyway. So I think that younger people, whatever you call whatever cohort you refer to them by, care about, you know, the smog that you talked about a second ago, Warren, that's like a low level problem compared to the you know, sort of the wall of challenges that, that are climate risk related that these, I'm going to call them kids, but that young people are facing today. And so I think, number one, there is this viewpoint that they're kind of lazy. They don't want to work. They don't want to stay in a job. They just want to go, you know, order frappuccinos at Starbucks. And I think that that is really a gross disservice I think to this generation, I would say that they are as concerned about social justice as they are capitalism. I would say that, and again, these are like really broad generalities. I think that they're more interested in many ways in experiences than they are in things. You know, I think my generation was all about just accumulating stuff. And I sort of see in younger people, a recognition that with resource constraint, we need to do a lot more in terms of, you know, an economy that isn't just driven by consumption. I think that they care deeply about, as I said, social justice, but I think that they care deeply about the environment. And therefore, I think that their style of investing moving forward, if it isn't informed simply by the tech companies that they grew up with, using their apps for the last 15 years, I think that they will very much be ESG investors. And I think that they're going to figure it out. I mean, I'm, there's a lot of days when I'm not very hopeful, but I think in general, I believe in the resilience of humanity. And I believe that this next generation, I actually wrote something on this that became a chapter of a book, but I think that the millennials are going to become known as the impact generation you know, much in the same way that um, I think Tom Brokaw coined the term the greatest generation to talk about cohort that came after World War II. But I think that they are going to define themselves by the ways in which they create impact. Wow. Bill, I could spend, I can't wait. You're coming down to Houston. And so we're going to spend some time together in person, just listening to you talk about the next generation. My daughter is a Gen Z and we're doing a children's book actually to try and reach her the next generation, you know, reaching them out to them so they are aware of the kinds of careers that are available in environment and energy. Talk a little bit about self and the approach the Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation takes in terms of educating teachers, because teachers are another element of this puzzle, right, around getting kids to be thinking about the next generations around sustainability. We'd love to hear more of the work that you've been doing with SELF and give a shout out to those great folks. Yeah, sure. So 
itself stands for Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation. It was founded by Katie Ginsburg, who's up in New York. And I think about 15 years ago, I actually joined the board a few years ago. And I was attracted to it because I like to solve problems. And I viewed this as a problem worth solving. And essentially what self does is, first of all, it's not anti-energy. It recognizes that energy is absolutely necessary, but we're also going through a transition. And really the point of self is to give young people and young people sort of K through 12 more than an Earth Day experience, right? Which is how schools typically deal with sustainability. It's like at the beginning of May every year and everybody goes around and picks up garbage or talks about the importance of growing gardens or something. And then it's back to the curriculum. And so the concept behind self is to work with teachers to incorporate sustainability into existing curriculum in whatever subject matter exists so that as kids go through school and come out of school, they have not only the critical thinking skills, but actually have a leg up in terms of actually, they have some tools at their disposal in terms of how to think about these problems and how to cope with the world that they're in the process of inheriting. So what's amazing to me is that this organization and really with almost no support whatsoever, over 15 years has managed to reach over a million kids through, I think my math might be slightly off here, but through 10 or 15,000 teachers and 3,000 schools. And so obviously you get the multiplier effect because you know every teacher is teaching three classes a day with, you know, in the public schools with like 30 or 40 kids in every class. And so you can see how by teaching the teachers, you're actually reaching all of these kids. And what's exciting is we actually opened up a physical presence in the Houston market. And, you know, I think our thinking at the board level, and this was largely due to a very generous sponsorship by First Reserve, which is a PE firm based down in Houston, among other places. And they saw the potential of this. I'm super excited because obviously, well, not obviously, we launched not long before COVID. And then of course, COVID changed the nature of teaching, right? Because everything became distance learning. And it created some immediate challenges for us because we're trying to build a physical presence in Houston. But it also did something, the silver lining in COVID for self is it has accelerated the pace through which we're actually building digital learning platforms, which then make us less place-based and enable us to actually reach more schools, more teachers, more students, because we can, it becomes essentially a go anywhere strategy. So we're, we're very early on in the Houston area, but have a great team down there. They're doing fantastic work. And, you know, it's just a terrific organization to support, especially because it's so small and so much, you know, any dollar that comes to self basically just has a huge sort of network effect within the system. And so, yeah, I'm really excited. So self, that's great. It's like through this interview, it's so obvious to me that there's so much community outreach that's involved with what you're doing and sharing a lot of information with youth, whether they're college students or going all the way down to the elementary school years. But Stan's Capital is, has a mission that I think is quite worth a quick conversation about, which is, the people that are working with you are people that 
they want the alignment of what their belief system is to be part of how they invest their money. And with ESG being such a focal point for you, I would imagine that you notice a common thread amongst the people you work with at Stance Capital as far as your clientele go. I'd love for you to share with us that. And then for those of us who, whether we're riding a train or we're at the park and you're in a conversation and you have the naysayers, what are some common things that you, that in your opinion, are things that anyone should consider if they're doubting the climate change reality? Yeah, well, I think, Warren, I think one thing that's important is that words matter, right? When people talk about sometimes sustainability or climate change, it's kind of like, it's, they're like trigger words, right? But if you say to a fisherman, you know, how are you feeling about the water temperature? or the fact that there's this giant dead zone, or there's these algae blooms that are coming out of the Mississippi Delta and affecting your work, everybody kind of gets it. So I think some of these terms get politicized, but the reality is, I think, you know, look, if you live in Houston, I think you, you almost have to believe that something is a little bit different, right? Because the storms keep getting bigger and the floods greater and all of that, but it's not just Houston, it's farmers in the Midwest, it's landowners whose fields are on fire out in the Pacific Northwest. And so I don't spend too much time, I don't really spend any time having the, is it real discussion anymore? I think if people wanna believe it isn't real, like everybody's free to believe whatever they believe. But I do think though there has been this, I don't know, perceptual obstacle about money and what you can do with money other than just making it and growing it and preserving it. And I would say this is kind of true of almost everybody. It's sort of like there's your money and then there's everything that you believe in and you support in life, but they're separate, right? So, and it has literally been true that there's people who have histories of say cancer in their family and they want to donate all their money to cancer research but they've never really thought, well, do I really want to have, you know, Philip Morris in my retirement portfolio? And they never really made that connection. It's kind of like, well, the job of money is to make money, however that happens. And then the job of philanthropy is to support whatever I care about supporting. And I think part of the reason that these dots have never been connected is that early attempts to connect the dots resulted in making less money. And of course, if you're making less money, not a lot of people want to sign up for it. So this all started as something called socially responsible investing, and it kind of has morphed into ESG. And within the socially responsible investing framework, it was really not about portfolio construction. It was just about getting stuff out of your portfolio. Tobacco, companies doing business in South Africa. I mean, there's been various points in time with various hot button issues. Fossil fuels is another issue for some people. So fine. You just eliminate stuff from your portfolio and that's all you do. Guess what? You underperform. Guess what? Nobody wants to do it. What we recognize, and we're not the only people that did so, but what we recognized back in 2013 is that this is really just about building portfolios. Because if I can build a portfolio where all other things are equal, but the client actually is investing in companies that do things that they like or they care about and are avoiding the industries and the companies that they really don't want to be associated with. And I can do it without sacrificing performance. Therefore, I can essentially build portfolios where values alignment is essentially a free option. I believe that over time, 
many, many more people will want to sign up for that free option than not. There's always going to be people who don't care, don't believe, whatever, let them do what they want. But I think this awakening that you can align investment portfolios with your capital, not underperform. Indeed, you can, in many cases, outperform with less risk is a big idea that is going to help reshape capital markets. And there are, by the way, people who believe in ESG who still think that that won't work. Because if I, let's say, divest from a company in my portfolio because of their poor ESG practices, it's not like that company really suffers, right? It's just some other investor. If enough people do it, the price goes down, at which point there's a whole class of investors who bargain shop and they'll jump in and then the price will go up again. So you're not really necessarily changing you're not really, the signal to the company is a weak signal at best in that example. However, consider for a moment if you're voting chairs and enough people are basically saying, listen, I want the companies I invest in to be more transparent around their carbon emissions, or I want the board to at least assign responsibility for climate oversight, because it is, in fact, risk, right? Every industry on earth is going to be affected by climate at one point or another. And therefore, for shareholders, this is all risk. And so if we can get people to recognize that they have the power to vote shares and to actually vote shares and to pay attention to this stuff, it does change corporate behavior. Wow. So we could talk for another 30 minutes. I can't wait to see you when you come to Houston and we'll get a chance to talk even more about these topics and want to encourage folks to look up self and some of the, the things that we've talked about today, obviously Stan's Capital. And can't wait to do more together with you, Bill. I think it's tremendous the things that you've done being an entrepreneur myself, watching another entrepreneur who's, who's gone a little bit before me, obviously, mm-hmm. and failed as we talked about earlier. Really, really glad that we have you on the program today. I'm Katie Maynard and on behalf of Ally Energy, this is the Voices of Energy. 